Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Uh, today, we want to take a look at the important role that post-secondary institutions in Canada play uh, beyond just educating students. Um, they are economic enablers, uh, bring lots of economic activity to the communities where they exist, and they're very important uh, in terms of uh, acting as a source of immigration. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about that today. People might be interested to know that uh, the year before COVID hit, there were over 600,000 uh, foreign students studying in Canada. Uh, the vast majority of them were studying at post-secondary institutions, universities and colleges, but also um, in, in secondary schools as well. Uh, this is part of a worldwide trend. <clears throat> uh, in 2000, there were about 2 million international students um, in the most recent year, there were 5 million. You know, that's a big increase over a short period of time. A lot of that has to do with a growing middle class in emerging markets, places like India and China, of course, uh, providing a lot of uh, foreign students to uh, Canada. Um, and they spend a lot of money when they come to our country. And the estimates are around $35,000 per year per student. And... <clears throat> Uh, another fact that I think is worth um, commenting on is that they pay international rates for education. They pay what I would consider full the full cost of education. So they're not being subsidized by the Canadian taxpayer. So, David, they're very, very important to the economy, obviously. That's right. And until recently, Atlantic Canada wasn't getting its share of that number. So I'm, it's really great to see. Uh, institutions such as UPEI and Cape Breton University uh, attracting a lot more, and even the college system here in New Brunswick and across the region attracting more international students as well. So they do bring significant economic value. But by my estimates, every thousand international students supports about 250 jobs directly, indirectly, and through induced effects. So they are, as you indicated, a primary economic driver uh, as they're studying here, but they're also an important source of talent uh, after they graduate. So there's, it's really a win-win-win for the community, for the institution, and for the students. Uh, and I'm glad to see that we're attracting more of them, and I hope it sustains itself after COVID-19. Well, obviously, uh, COVID's had an impact on the ability of foreign students to get to our country. Um, there are almost 18,000 international students in Atlantic Canada uh, prior to, uh, even actually last year, which was down from um, the previous year of about 19,000. So there was a dip in the, in the last year. Um, uh, uh, 18,000 is a, is a pretty big number. That number has been growing uh, dramatically because one of the problems that Canadian universities have is that there's they don't have uh, the domestic market they used to have. The domestic uh, number of people 18 to 24 is really leveled off as a result of the baby boom generation kind of finally having their kids out of the university. And so the source of uh, students uh, has been a bit uh, diminished in Canada. So it makes sense to look for... Uh, students uh, outside of Canada, obviously. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to David Dingwall, uh, the uh, president and vice chancellor of uh, CBU, is that uh, CBU has the, the largest percentage 
of immigrant students uh, or foreign students in Atlantic Canada. Over 50% of their students uh, come from uh, elsewhere, um, mostly places like uh, India and, and China. And uh, in my conversation with David, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a strategy for them uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, we know that, and you know, I think you're doing work in uh, CBRM, that, you know, for decades they've been losing population until only recently when that trend turned around. That was due and has been due to um, the foreign students studying uh, at CBU. And I've mentioned this before. Uh, before I sold my company, we did a project for AAU, the Association of Atlantic Universities, with international students. We asked them a bunch of things. One of the things we did ask them is uh, their interest in staying in Canada and 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 working here after graduation. And uh, we found out, uh, maybe a bit surprisingly, that more than 60% of them really had uh, that wish. And not only that, the most important part of that finding was that they wanted to stay in the communities where they were educated. So, you know, places like Sydney and, and then smaller communities outside the major centers in, in Atlantic Canada can profit from having immigrant students study in their community. So it's really uh, important uh, that we find ways of keeping them here. That's right. And they're actually playing a role in the workforce while they study, many of them. I don't have a percentage, but many of them are working while they study and they're working summer jobs as well in fish plants and in tourism and around Cape Breton Island. There's actually buses that ship them out from uh, CBRM to the job sites. So they're really playing an important role while they're studying, uh, but also, as you say, trying to find ways to keep them after they graduate, potential entrepreneurial roles or professional roles or roles that take advantage of the university education. I would say I am doing work in CBRM right now on an economic development strategy. And I think the community college, the big new building being constructed in Sydney there, that also has a, a potentially important role to play in terms of bringing in uh, international students. I will say, Don, that, you know, you, you mentioned a bit the history of, uh, of Cape Breton. The reality is that every economy has uh, economic engines. And that engine was, was coal mining and steel production and so on for a while. It was in a very industrial base. And I think that David Dingwall's vision now is to sort of center education, post-secondary education as an economic engine uh, for the economy. I think that's very exciting in a, in a digitally driven, you know, uh, innovative driven new, new economy. So I think it's, it'll be exciting to see how that emerges over the next 10 or 15 years. But what he's done and what they've done so far has been very impressive. Well, again, to your point, um, in our conversation, David indicated that the university employed almost 600 people. And that's a big employer uh, for the Sydney area, obviously. Um, <clears throat> he calculated that the economic value of the university to uh, that community in Cape Breton was almost $200 million a year. Uh, so it's a big, it's a big economic driver, obviously, uh, in that community. And uh, I think that uh, a lot of people don't understand that uh, the the role that uh, universities play in the economy, and that's a good indication. And by the way, um, of the eighteen thousand, nearly eighteen thousand students that uh, come to Atlantic Canada to study here, they generate over five hundred million dollars of economic activity. That's a big number too. 
and uh, and makes uh, you know pays for a lot of services. I I I t- took a look at some information recently, and uh, the international students contribute in taxes alone through purchases about 120 million dollars uh, to the Atlantic economy, which means 120 million dollars for things like education, healthcare, and roads. So you know we need to we need to be really welcoming for these uh, international students. And by the way, one of the things that I found really interesting in my conversation with David is that uh, they put a big emphasis on on becoming, uh, you know, trying to generate a welcoming uh, community for foreign students. You know, they don't have a very diverse um, <clears throat> community in terms of um, makeup. And you know, I think that that's a that's been a very important part of what they see as an attraction and retren- and retention strategy for foreign students studying at CBU. Well, I can tell you, I was there two weeks ago and walking around downtown Sydney. Uh, it is much more um, a diverse mix of folks walking around the streets uh, than you would have seen maybe ten years ago. Now, some of those might have been tourists, but I'm sure many of them were the students uh, uh, coming back and slowly coming back for the for now that they can study on campus again. I would say that the other thing, you, you know, you talk about universities as engines of growth. They have put a big priority in recent years on entrepreneurship. And that is also the case at Cape Breton University. Uh, the, for example, the center, the Verschuren Center for Sustainability and Energy and Environment was actually cited recently in the Toronto Star uh, under the headline, Biotech Companies Migrating East. And in fact, there's something like two dozen startup companies that are affiliated with that center at CBU because of the infrastructure they have there and biotechnology and clean tech. Uh, and they, you know, national and international entrepreneurs are setting up there uh, to start their companies and grow their companies uh, in Cape Breton. So it's very, very exciting as you say, they're not just uh, engines for studying and for uh, educational activity. They're also supporting industrial development, research, entrepreneurship, and like I said, at the center uh, of of new uh, new industrial activity, particularly in Cape Breton in this case, but also across Atlantic Canada. Well, it kind of reminds me of what's happened in um, PEI and the BioAlliance uh, sector. Exactly the same things happened. It's created a lot of jobs, high-paying jobs, and um, it's really helped uh, the island economy greatly. Um, and, you know, I think that, that one of the things that David sees is a role for the university uh, in, in helping generate entrepreneurism. And we need to be reminded that uh, international students tend to be more entrepreneurial than domestic students. They bring their energy and their motivation and their ideas uh, to our communities and our country. And it's a very valuable part of what they what they do. Your discussion with David Dingwell was very interesting. He uh, he's had a very interesting career. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks after they've had a senior role in cabinet in the federal government or even a senior role in the bureaucracy will retire and, and go off into the sunset, but he did not. Uh, he took the job as uh, president of CBU and also had a vision for that institution. So I think it's a very exciting conversation that people will enjoy listening to today. Yeah, and just a final comment before we get into the interview. I, I first met David Dingwall at Dalhousie University 100 years ago when we were both studying. He was studying for a law degree, a law degree, by the way, which he still maintains. 
uh, a law, you know, a, a law uh, practice uh, that he still uh, has in his back pocket. And I was studying an MBA, and we uh, we were doing a graduate course together. So uh, we followed each other's career over that many years. It's really a fascinating, uh, you know, career for him for for sure. And uh, so I think you'll all uh, enjoy our conversation with uh, David Dingwall. Here it is. In this episode of the Insights Podcast, we look at the important role that universities play in the attraction and retention of immigrants in Atlantic Canada. Our guest today is David Dingwall, the President and Vice Chancellor of Cape Breton University, the university with the highest percentage of foreign students in the region. Welcome to our podcast, David. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we first met a long time ago, David, uh, when we were both at uh, Dalhousie University in the early 70s. I think we, uh, we, uh, you were going to law school. I was completing an MBA. We took a course together and got to know each other a little bit at that time. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It certainly has, but I followed your career as uh, you've been quite involved in a variety of things. I think uh, one of the most recent things, which is... Uh, kind of old for both of us, was the uh, the G7 that took place in Halifax. Yes. I believe you were part and parcel of the uh, Atlantic uh, Economic Council at the time, if I'm correct. Well, I was uh, actually the chair of the uh, Halifax. Uh, recently amalgamated Chamber of Halifax, and, and, and we were involved. And we're going to talk about that in a second, because I think that, that was an important moment for, uh, for the city and the province, obviously. Uh, you've had a uh, a very interesting and varied career uh, from being a politician and a federal minister in Jean Chrétien's cabinet to being the CEO of the Royal Canadian Mint and now president of the Cape Breton University. Tell us a little bit about your journey during your current role as president of CBU. Well, I, I think there's a couple of factors uh, that I'd like to share. One is that uh, I'm a member of the Nova Scotia Bar, practicing member and have been for an extended period of time. I practiced law for a period of time, practiced law in Toronto for about 10 years. Yes, I was uh, a member of parliament and then uh, had the privilege to go on to be a, a minister of the crown in Mr. Kretchen's government and had several positions uh, since leaving public life. Uh, a very interesting career, uh, met a lot of interesting people. And uh, today I assume the role as president and vice chancellor of Cape Breton University after an extensive uh, process on their part uh, to choose a, a candidate to lead the university. You held a number of important portfolios in the Kretzian government uh, that were helpful to this region, including being the Minister of Public Works and the Minister of Supply and Services and Minister Responsible for ACOA. Uh, can you provide a few examples of the importance of having senior portfolio representation at the cabinet table for a region like Atlantic Canada? Well, I think it's pretty important, not because I served in those roles, but I think it's important for the sustainability of the region. Uh, ACOA plays a pretty formidable role. Uh, most people just look at uh, their budget and say, well, their budget hasn't improved uh, over the years, therefore, it doesn't have the teeth. Well, there's a provision within the ACOA Act that requires senior officials to be an advocate for the Atlantic region. So there are discussions with other departments, whether it be Crown Corporations, whether it be a federal department, uh, various agencies, uh, they have a substantive 
advocacy role to play on behalf of the region. And I'd like to underline that because I think it's important today and it will be important for the future of Atlantic Canada that that role be enhanced as we move forward on a variety of policy policy fronts. Uh, So being at the cabinet table, you you have an opportunity uh, to participate in the dialogue of the country, whether it's on economic development policy, uh, immigration policy, which has been new for the Atlantic region, and we'll probably get into that, uh, but a host of other things, social policy, uh, equalization, all of those things come to bear. And as a minister of the crown, Uh, you have an obligation to participate in those kinds of debates because they are substantive and they have a great deal of impact on our region. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, you were instrumental uh, in bringing the G7 summit to Halifax in 1996. Uh, I was uh, the chair of the Halifax Chamber of Commerce at the time. Uh, The chamber was involved in the People's Summit, if you recall, and uh, I thought it was a very pivotal moment for the city and the province. Um, Why do you think it was important uh, for Halifax to host the G7 summit, David? Well, you know, I I was a minister from Nova Scotia, and uh, I I had a constituency uh, here in Cape Breton, uh, which uh, had a lot of uh, economic challenges. But when I saw the opportunity to pursue Uh, the G7, Uh, I was uh, assisted by a very able public servant, and I wish to give him credit uh, for he is the one that drafted the letter, which I subsequently changed, and we provided it to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is the only one that would have the authority for saying where the G7 goes. And the the gentleman's name was Wynne Potter, who was the vice president of ACOA. And Wynne was was very helpful. Uh, So we supplied that letter to the prime minister. I met with him several times, met with several other ministers who were advocating for Ottawa, advocating for Quebec City. And uh, we sort of played a a little bit of a, uh, a strategic negotiations And uh, it worked to Halifax's advantage because I thought Halifax had everything that was needed for a successful G7. And I think it was a successful G7. But if you're asking me today, did we lose something by hosting the G7 in Halifax? I think the answer is yes. We've missed a few things along the way. I don't think the provincial government of the day took advantage of this particular opportunity to promote Atlantic Canada and in particular, Nova Scotia. We were the showcase of the world, whether it was from Japan, Germany. Uh, We even had Boris Yeltsin uh, who showed up from uh, from Russia. Uh, But I'm not sure that we as a community in Nova Scotia really took advantage of that opportunity and seized upon uh, the great economic activities that uh, could have impacted us even greater in the future. 
That was a remarkable uh, G7. I think it was the last time that we had uh, seven leaders uh, walking freely down the streets of Halifax without a lot of protection. I remember attending a, a performance uh, of Cirque du Soleil with the, with the leaders front, front and centre without a lot of protection. It was a different time for sure. Uh, one little anecdote I wanted, uh, wanted to mention that, that you, you may not uh, have known about is that I was also at the same time the chair of the board of the YMCA and we had the, uh, the opening of the community Y in Goddington Street and we were able to convince Hillary Clinton to officially uh, open the, the Y. That was kind of a remarkable opportunity for the Y, obviously. And it, it shows you the value of, of having a conference like that and having people come to our city. So um, I, I actually thought, uh, looking back, that it, it really... It, it really uh, caused people in the rest of the country to take a different look at our region. And I think that that was maybe even more important than the world recognition. So, you know, congratulations for, you know, helping bring that important uh, summit to our city. But if, but if, if I may, Don, sure, in terms you of uh, the, the G7 in, in Halifax, uh, it had a, a lasting impact. I remember walking with John Major in Halifax. And he said to me, where's all the security? <laughs> I said, well, we, we, we have a, a line here that people don't cross. Yes, but he said, where are all the police? And I said, well, there, there's police here. He said, this is so different from previous G7s I've attended. And I walked with Clinton <clears throat> and we were on the boat coming across the harbor and he was looking into the crowd and he remarked, he said, there doesn't seem to be very much security here. Oh, I said, there's sufficient security. So they were impressed uh, by the fact that this small area of, of, of Canada was very secure. <clears throat> we had good security, but it wasn't in your face. Uh, it wasn't obstructing the view of, uh, of visitors uh, other than which roads you could travel and not travel. So that was a positive impact that I thought the summit brought to Nova Scotia. But we should have done more with the G7. We should have involved, I think, post the G7, the private sector. We should have been looking at international events that we could host after the G7, and, but we didn't do that. And uh, the only thing that we did do, and I give credit to Peter McKay, because he established uh, a beachhead in Halifax with international security. Those were the kinds of things that I think we should have done post uh, the G7 in Halifax, but there wasn't an appetite that I could see from the provincial government at that time or others. Yeah, again, just as a, a side comment, uh, obviously I've been actively involved uh, in the city for a long time. I felt at the time we lacked a, a certain level of confidence, uh, both in the city and the province. Uh, you know, since then, in the last 20 years, I think uh, both the city and the province has, uh, ha have come of age, if you will. And I think that there's a new, if it were to happen today, I believe it would have been handled, uh, the post-summit uh, would have been very different because uh, we are a confident community now in Halifax, a growing community. 
you know, excited about the future. That wasn't the case in the, in the mid-90s for sure. I, I think you're right in terms of, of that particular assessment. But opportunities were lost. Commonwealth Games lost that. Yeah. A bid for the Olympic Games. Yeah. Well, you know, we could talk. And about there's a great there's a great <laughs> story that I could share with you on the Olympic Games, but since you want to talk about other things, I won't bore yeah. you. <laughs> and I could talk about the Commonwealth Games because I was uh, kind of an advocate for that. And uh, anyway, that's another story. Uh, you became uh, president and vice chancellor of Cape Breton University, I, I believe, in July, uh, uh, January of 2018. Um, what were the biggest challenges you faced when you first became president of CBU, David? I think a confidence factor, believing in ourselves as a university and ensuring the community that, uh, look, uh, this is one entity amongst many others, but uh, we have the wherewithal to offer a, a high quality product in terms of educational services, uh, that we do have a substantive impact on the economic wherewithal of, of Cape Breton Island, as all universities in Nova Scotia do. We're more than just offering academic programs. We are engines of economic activity. And uh, we in Cape Breton, in particular at CBU, we're so intertwined with our community that not only do we need to, to do more, uh, but we have to advocate more uh, for our community, whether it be with the private sector, regional governments, governments internationally and elsewhere. So it is a significant uh, economic uh, force that is important to the island as a whole. Uh, tell us a little bit about your enrollment. How many full-time students uh, attend CBU and, uh, and how many are international students, David? The vast majority of our students are international. Uh, in 2019, prior to the pandemic, we were able to grow our uh, footprint in terms of students from about 3,200 to about 6,000. That in anybody's book is quite substantial. But as a result of the pandemic uh, and the variant that now seems to be out there, our numbers have decreased, but it's still a very high percentage and will continue to be so for quite some time. Uh, we have uh, a very... Uh, focused approach to international students in terms of the, the quality of the product that we offer, the cost, the affordability of that particular product. Uh, we also uh, put in place measures in terms of uh, academic integrity for the students because they come from uh, different backgrounds. And uh, we offer cultural and athletic activities. And of course, the picturesque of Cape Breton Island, which I think is second to none in the country. In fact, Don, I haven't heard you say this, but I know you <laughs> want to say it. We're the number one island in Canada, again, and we're the number six island in the world. That's something to lay claim to. Well, you know, uh, David, I've been to Cape Breton this year. I go almost every year. It's a spectacular place. Um, you might not recall this, but uh, uh, during uh, uh, my uh, career uh, in the research business, I was involved with um, marketing, tourism marketing, and we, uh, our, our group of companies came up with a, a term for uh, Cape Breton. It was called Nova Scotia's Masterpiece. Uh, do you remember that? 
I certainly do. And, I certainly and, do. and honestly, it, it, it remains the, the truth. It's a spectacular place to visit for sure. Um, certainly the pandemic has uh, affected uh, foreign enrollment, uh, student enrollments across the country. Uh, I, I was looking at the uh, most recent enrollment numbers for last year, I think it was, and uh, it looks like you were down maybe a, around a thousand international students as a result of the pandemic. And uh, and obviously that's that's had an impact uh, on you. Uh, w- What's it look like this year? Is it is it going to come back? Um, are your enrollment going to go back up this year? Enrollments will increase in in subsequent months and subsequent years. There's probably three major factors that are taking place. Uh, one is on visas. Uh, many of the visa offices in countries around the world are scaled down because of the pandemic. So that's a challenge a for students and for employees in these visa offices to get up and running. Secondly is the flights. Uh, International flights are are limited. Uh, I think you saw today where the United States uh, and uh, I think some of the European countries, they have uh, pushed back on US flights into Europe. Uh, That's a complicating factor. And uh, the third, of course, is the the vaccine. Uh, We at CBU made a conscious decision that we were uh, mandated that people will have vaccines. Uh, Some of our international students, which I don't worry about at all because they're they're quite compliant in terms of the rules that you put in place, will be vaccinated. Uh, But on such time that those three issues are, are together and working harmoniously, uh, it makes it very difficult for universities in Canada to take advantage, whether those kids come from India, the Philippines, Bangladesh, uh, China, elsewhere in, in the world. It's challenging. And uh, we, we'll be down again this year, uh, but uh, 2022, providing, of course, that uh, the vaccine and the variant is not taking grip uh, we'll be in much better shape. Now, what have been your specific strategies for recruiting foreign students to CBU? Well, I, I think there's a, a number of factors that, that come to the, to the table. The, the first factor is that you have to offer a quality product. Now, some of the academics don't like me using those kinds of words, but you have to <laughs> offer a quality product, a quality experience. That's first and foremost. Secondly, it needs to be affordable. And uh, we are not the cheapest in Atlantic Canada, but we're pretty close in terms of the costs that when you come to Cape Breton University. The third thing, which easily could be number one, is the institution and the community a welcoming society? <clears throat> That's played to our strategic advantage. We are very welcoming. Yes, we deal with agents and agencies who work, come to our campus. We work cooperatively with them in terms of assessing different students. But the university, from faculty to staff to the administration, and the community 
needs to be a welcoming community. And uh, I think we've done quite well on that particular element, which uh, I think if you read some of the surveys, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit overwhelming in terms of it being a positive factor for us going forward. Then you have to be in a position to offer some cultural and athletic recreational activities for students once they're here on the campus. And let me just underline the cultural side. One of the things that we do, in fact, we're doing it today, is that we demonstrate our culture, whether it be uh, Scottish, Irish, uh, Indigenous, Acadian, we demonstrate our culture to students, but we reciprocate. For instance, we have the, the Chinese New Year, we have Diwali, we have a number of other cultures where they get an opportunity to present themselves and their culture to us. So that seems to have worked well for us in pushing the two peoples or different peoples together in understanding one another. And then of course, uh, scholarships, uh, research, uh, that's all important. Uh, we do have some work placements in the community that they can take advantage of. Uh, but as I've said, uh, in uh, university and high schools in India, in China, in Bangladesh, Vietnam, don't come here if you want a job. We're not a job university. Yeah, might be some part-time jobs that you'll be able to get or summer employment. But that's not the focus. The focus is the five other things that I shared with you. Right. Uh, you, you've clearly focused your attention on foreign student enrollment as a strategy for the university. I think you're one of the fastest universities to, um, you know, target this segment of the uh, student population. A lot of other university and regions are very slow to, uh, to look at this as an opportunity. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the reasons for this focus for CBU? Well, you know, <clears throat> we, we've been at this for, for quite some time. Uh, for instance, in China, we've been in China for well over 10 years. Uh, India, we haven't been there as long, uh, but we have a, a big organization in India as well as on the campus in terms of uh, attracting people to come to our university. You need to keep in mind, as I'm sure you're well aware, more so than most, that the demographics in Atlantic Canada are pretty bad, mm -hmm. are pretty bad. So where are you going to get students to come to your university? I, I think if you look at some of the data, Nova Scotia universities for a considerable period of time were looked upon as the be-all and end-all for students coming from Ontario, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia. Well, that's changed. The Ford government, for instance, say, well, you want to go to university? Uh, we'll subsidize you up to a point, <clears throat> but you have to go to university in Ontario. Therefore, that great influx of Ontario students is now coming way down, way down for all universities. I think the growth is very small, maybe one or two universities 
in the Atlantic region do okay with students from Ontario, but those numbers are coming down. And we predict that. Uh, and as a result, we took measures to say, hey, uh, if we want to play in the international field, uh, we have to have a deep reach. It needs to be planned. It needs to be have a backup. Uh, it needs to involve the senior administration, uh, the recruitment, the academic side. And uh, we have focused quite deliberately. Uh, you, you might know this, but uh, we have over 50 different countries where we have students from at CBU. Well, that's that's really quite incredible, given that it's happened over a fairly short period of time. You talked about, you know, have, creating a welcoming community for uh, international students. Uh, Cape Breton is not the most diverse in terms of population uh, at this moment, although it's becoming a little more diverse with each passing year. What has been the reaction to having so many uh, foreign students in uh, in the community? It's been really overwhelming. Uh, I don't agree with the premise of your question. Uh, we in Cape Breton have had many different cultures, many different people from many parts of the world, uh, from China, other parts of Asia, from uh, Europe, uh, Latin America, etc. But the students in recent years have uh, participated in uh, a variety of different activities. Without them, I would say that our hospitality industry would be operating at 50% less. And just to give you an example, in 2019, we set up a process where we had small vans taking some of our international students to all parts of the island so that they could work in the tourism sector, which provided needed labor, whether it was in English, Richmond County, Victoria County, parts of the CBRM. Students were working for these, earning good money, and also seeing the countryside, which they thought was spectacular. That worked to our advantage. We hope to get back to that uh, in due course, which certainly adds uh, for the student and for employers. So I would say that uh, employers and the community at large have been... Uh, very, very well received and have done their part to make it much more welcoming here in Cape Breton. Uh, my understanding is that there, I looked at the numbers, close to 18,000 students attending uh, universities in Atlantic Canada. Um, can you talk a little bit about the econ overall economic impact of foreign students uh, in Cape Breton? Well, I think the numbers, if you, if you go and look at Atlantic Canada, it's close to $500 million, the economic whack from international students. Uh, we in Cape Breton, in terms of our international students, the economic cloak of that is about $185 million on a per annum basis, which is significant in a small community such as ours. We have, as we now speak in... Uh, in September of uh, 2021, we have over 583 employees, full-time and part-time at CBU. That's a big payroll for any company, for any institution. 
which contributes significantly to the economic well-being of, of the island and of the people who live here. So it is very sizable for us. Uh, and in fact, the government of Nova Scotia did their own analysis uh, a year and a half ago, and they're the ones that uh, came up with these numbers in terms of the impact that CBU is having on the community. Yeah, these are un unrecognized, uh, for the most part, uh, benefits of having international students in our communities, for sure. Uh, before I sold my interest in Corporate Research Associates, which is now uh, Narrative Research, we conducted a comprehensive study with foreign students for the Atlantic Association of Universities. You may have seen that study, David, which indicated that more than 60% of international students had a desire to stay in Canada after graduation, and more importantly, remain in the communities where they had been educated. Indeed, uh, you know, it's clear that universities are becoming an important uh, means of attracting and retaining immigrants to our region. The fact that the Sydney's, um, uh, Sydney area's population is growing is, I guess, testament to that success. Can you tell us about CBR's uh, role in growing the population? I think that this is a, an important subject. Well, yes, uh, CBU has had a profound impact on the island, not only the CBRM, but other communities as well. And uh, with uh, those principles that I talked about in terms of quality education, uh, affordable uh, athletics, culture, all of those things play a factor. But the welcoming factor is very important because what we've seen is that we've seen parents, we've seen siblings of our students who want to remain in Cape Breton have had siblings, parents come, make investments, uh, which we think is, uh, is quite dramatic <clears throat> in terms of our small island uh, here in Cape Breton. And uh, with the welcoming mat, which is open, exercised by the municipalities, our indigenous population in the university, uh, we are helping to fulfill needs uh, you know, the demographics are bad in Atlantic Canada, just not in Cape Breton, but very bad. And there's positions that can be filled where people can do quite well and raise a family, etc. So there, there, there's good synergies between the two. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, in our next round of discussion, as it relates to immigration, there, there will be a, a bigger and better component on the entrepreneurial side of the equation. Uh, because I, there are many people in, in the world who would love to come to Cape Breton, set up an operation, but also have an operation in India, have an operation in, in China, and have an operation in, uh, in, in Europe. And, and that's the way we have to think. Just to put it in context, in the 50s, when an immigrant would come to Canada, uh, they would probably come through Halifax. Uh, they would save up all of their money, their family money, and they would either go to the steel plant, which was booming, go to Montreal where the clothing was explosive, or parts of Western Canada. And they would remain there for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Today, 
the entrepreneurial immigrant, he or she gets on a plane, they fly to Toronto and they fly into Halifax. They do their business in Halifax, maybe Cape Breton, maybe Charlottetown, etc., etc. They stay two or three days and then they fly to British Columbia. They go to California and then they go back. So within the space of a week, these entrepreneurs are in four or five different countries. We need to take advantage of those opportunities. A, they have the wherewithal, the money, they have the ideas, they create jobs, they create wealth. So we want to be on the cutting edge of that. And I, I'm hopeful that, that the province, in working with the federal government and others, uh, will try to steer the ship to have more entrepreneurial immigrants coming to our countries to set up shop <clears throat> and to open up businesses. But we have a class right now in Cape Breton that are very entrepreneurial as students who want to be involved, who want to start businesses, who want to join businesses. And this has been very helpful in terms of enhancing the economic cloak, if you will, uh, of the island as a, as a giver uh, of uh, economic wealth for the province. Yeah, further to that point, I not that long ago I wrote a column about the uh, you know the transfer of businesses that are that is currently underway in Canada. Uh, and, and I think I, I did a rough estimate over the next five to ten years in, in Nova Scotia. There's something like twenty thousand businesses will transfer ownership. I actually was part of that group, as you know. And the problem that we have uh, is uh, there are uh, lots of sellers, not enough buyers in the current population. And so one, one avenue, I think, that, uh, that supplement your thinking is that if we opened up a class of entrepreneurs to come in and buy businesses that were in that transfer mode, that would be a, a very easy win for both sides. And, and I'm hoping that government start to see that opportunity because I don't think many people recognize that we are short on the uh, buyer side when it comes to the transfer of businesses uh, from the baby boom generation. You're, you're absolutely on point, uh, Don, but if I may, yeah. universities have a role to play in that. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we should be engaging, we should be engaging would-be buyers, whether they be domestic or whether they be international, in terms of what you need to go through. If you're a seller of a business, uh, you may say, you may not say, you may tell, you may not tell. But buyers have to be attuned to what is happening and see the opportunities. And I think universities have a role to play in educating, transferring information, bringing people together, working with chambers of commerce, understanding what the needs, what the opportunities are. And if you bring in this class of entrepreneurial immigrants, I think it becomes even greater for existing businesses to sell, and for people to pick that up and run with it. Uh, again, as an aside, the study that we did for AAU with uh, international students, one of the things that was really clearly different because we did we did uh, we also did a study of uh, domestic students was that the international students were significantly more likely to be interested in starting their own business compared to 
Canadian students. That was a major difference. And we see that with immigrants coming to this region. They are way more entrepreneurial than the people who, you know, are here already. And and we need that uh, entrepreneurial drive in our region, don't we? Absolutely. And uh, we, we see it with our, our students. Uh, in fact, uh, any number of them, uh, one of them just opened up a restaurant, another one has opened up a, a car services parts. They're just so entrepreneurial. These are 24-year-olds, 25-year-olds. And uh, we see it in the tourism sector. We see it in a variety of different sectors. But they're much more entrepreneurial than some of our local people are which I think is encouraging, and we should welcome them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, there are some uh, government uh, programs that support uh, foreign students staying after graduation, including the federal program, the Postgraduate uh, Work Program. Can you tell us about uh, these programs and, and perhaps what more needs to be done to allow more foreign students to stay in Atlantic Canada after graduation? Well, I think the programs are good. I think they can be embellished in different areas uh, to make sure certain costs are, are covered. Uh, I think we need to uh, work with the private sector, make sure that their experiences uh, are good. <clears throat> we had, for example, some people in the tourism sector who would retain a particular individual who ends up washing dishes. Well, I'm sorry, with a university degree, you don't want to have that student washing dishes, maybe a very small part of it, washing dishes just to learn that aspect of, of the business. But I, I, I think those enticements uh, need to have a good quality job experience. And the employer has to have, A, some assistance, financial and otherwise, in order to provide that to the young person who they wish to hire on a full-time basis. And uh, so often we think, oh, well, it's just money. Well, it's not just money. It's the experience. What happens after six o'clock at night? Where do these young people go? What are some of the cultural things that are available? What about affordable housing for these individuals? What about access to health care? Is that doable? Those are the kinds of things that I think government can play a role with the private sector and with university as we try to, to grow that particular aspect of, uh, of having more permanent uh, residents here in, in Nova Scotia. Now, you've talked a little bit about this, uh, and, and I, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, there are lessons from, um, from what uh, CBU is doing in, in the community uh, what what uh, would you have other communities focus on to become more welcoming to those from other countries with different languages and cultures? Well, it's interesting that you raise that because myself and uh, Bill Leahy, the president and vice chancellor at King's, uh, he was the chair, I was the vice chair on innovation as it relates to uh, the attraction of international students. And we focused on, on culture and how to be a welcoming society. So what you would do in the Annapolis Valley, they may be a little bit different in Pictou, uh, maybe a little bit different in Cape Breton and different in Halifax. But certainly the welcoming of those cultures to the respective parts of Nova Scotia needs to be uplifted. 
more outreaching, uh, more conversations, more dialogue. And of course, those social things that impact as to whether a person will stay or not. Is it a friendly society? Can I get access to affordable housing? What about my health care, the advantage of my health care uh, in terms of our, of our communities? Because internationally, uh, you know, Canadians in Nova Scotia has got to recognize that our health care system is, is, uh, is the envy of the world. But once you get here, it's not so much. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think Mr. Houston uh, was correct when he hit the nail on the head in terms of healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. So those issues need to be addressed. <clears throat> Universities play a role. I think the private sector play a role. And I think governments can play a private role. And when I say governments, I'm not just talking about provincial or federal. I'm talking about municipal governments as well. They have a role to play. Finally, I, <clears throat> I think it's quite evident that there's something very positive happening in Cape Breton, especially in the Sydney area. There's lots of uh, startup uh, activity. There's growth in the population. Uh, Looking ahead, how optimistic are you about the Sydney area and and Cape Breton in in general now that the population has finally begun to grow? I'm very optimistic. Uh, I don't have colored uh, glasses on. I'm optimistic. I think we need to do certain things exceedingly well, such as the welcoming society. We have to enhance our infrastructure uh, as a community across the island. Uh, And what I mean by that is that uh, our facilities here on the campus need to be upgraded. You need affordable housing. Those kinds of things have, have to take place. And we also have to be even more entrepreneurial than the past. Uh, You know, many Nova Scotians don't recognize, but Cape Breton is an innovation hotspot. And if you look at our history and some of the practices that have been developed over the years uh, came from innovation. And as a result of that, we need more innovation, more entrepreneurial uh, people at the helm taking the risk Uh, so that uh, we can ensure that uh, the future will look even brighter as we move forward. Well, David, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast and helping our listeners better understand the key role universities are playing in attracting uh, immigrants to our region. Thank you very much, Don. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.